lab mindset versus a we're going to deliver actual there's a business problem or a customer problem or an opportunity and we're going to actually deliver an outcome is a different is a different exercise than we need to start using these tools and we're not sure but we know they're important so we do want to actually spin up and deploy a machine learning model into production that Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. And there we go. We are recording. So just before you joined, um, Jason and I were just talking about the whole Houston Astros baseball situation. Ah, yes. (laughs) The cheating. The cheating. So quick question. Where are you located? I can't remember when we last talked. I'm not too far from Fenway Park, actually, as the crow flies, at least. 40, oh, 40 okay. minute drive, but it's only two miles away. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're, you're up in Boston. Yeah, yeah. So you've seen some of the fallout with that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, I'm probably going to get someone. I'm looking around my windows to see if anyone hears me say this. I don't follow the Red Sox or any organized baseball whatsoever. In fact, okay. I play soccer, but I don't, I'm not really a sports uh, watcher. Mm-hmm. But I got really into soccer a few years ago. So that's kind of more my, my thing that I do a couple nights a week. So. No, I, I see. Am I, 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 I see. I see you as a as a number ten. A number ten. We're pretty ghetto. We don't even have numbered jerseys. But I'm thinking about getting uh, actually making jerseys for my band. I have a a chamber music ensemble slash band, and so I'm like, I should get jerseys like limited edition. You know, up to twenty numbers. <laughs> you know, something <laughs> like that. So I need to get a team and a jersey. <laughs> So that would be that would be awesome, and that's one yeah. that's something that I heard, and I'm like extremely uh, nervous now to talk to Brian. You're you're a drummer. Uh, that's correct. Yes, I. So I have kind of my two two lives, two two businesses, two lives. Um, I this is something I actually changed in 2020. I, I used to keep it pretty much on the on the down low, um, but since going independent, I've kind of opened up about the fact that I have two careers. Um, so, you know, I, I run designing for analytics, which is my, uh, product design consulting firm that specializes in data products and analytics and decision support, uh, solutions. And then, uh, I also work as a professional musician. So I am a, a percussionist and drummer. Uh, that's my original training and in, in school was actually in music. So, so yeah, so I do play with orchestras and Broadway type, you know, touring shows. And then I run a couple ensembles and play in a few bands and just do random random gigs and stuff like that so those are my kind of my two lives that that is amazing so (laughs) i know we just kind of jumped into like the the initial random chat that we have to to kick things off so for those listening who um are 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 wondering who we're talking to so jason and i have a special guest with us this week we have uh brian o'neill He's the founder of Designing Analytics and host of the Experiencing Data podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Designing for Analytics is an independent consultancy which helps product leaders and data strategists innovate by applying uh, human-centered design to, to data science and analytics. So one of the things I'd love for you to tell us is, you know, what, what, you know describe you know, human-centered design. So, but for, for over 20 years, uh, Brian has worked with companies like Dell EMC, TripAdvisor, Fidelity, J.P. Morgan Chase, and and many many others. So, so Brian, uh, thanks for uh, for joining us today. Yeah, yeah, I'm super happy to be here. So, how did you get into to analytics? That's a good question. Um, so. 20 years ago, I moved out here from uh, Arizona here to Boston area. And, you know, at the time I was kind of, again, doing these two jobs. I had my career as a musician and then I had a day job and I started out on the startup scene here. And 
uh, as a web designer and eventually kind of moved into application and software design as it was moving on to the web. And I kind of found a niche in financial services and information products and services, uh, starting out at actually Lycos, if you remember them. I worked on and kind of ran design for all of the uh, trading and investment type tools that they had. So they had some really early streaming charting uh, tools and stuff like that. So that was kind of my first foray into uh, analytics and data products. Uh, and then I did a bunch of financial services work. Uh, and then kind of the next big chapter of uh, clients and uh, stuff that I did after I left the, the employment world and went into consulting, uh, I had some... Uh, past colleagues who were moving off to other projects and and one of them in particular always every time he jumped ship he's a software architect he would drag me into we had to come and fix this crap like <laughs> and uh, he kind of pulled me into this whole world of uh, products for people that manage data centers and so uh, if you're an IT person and you're managing uh, storage uh, or compute or networking infrastructure uh, there are a lot of different um, software tools that you use to keep infrastructure running. And these days, it's, you know, obviously things are moving into the cloud. And so there's a whole movement to obviously reduce the, the expenditure and tax that that's created by using uh, on-premise tools like that. But nevertheless, they still exist. And, you know, Dell EMC and NetApp and these companies are still building, uh, you know, products and, and, and hardware and software products. And within those, uh, analytics is a big issue in terms of managing um, uh, things like storage capacity, uh, performance management. Uh, a big one is um, doing root cause analysis for um, detecting anomalies and problems with performance, et cetera. And so it's, it's super niche, but that was kind of where I really started realizing that, hey, I've been kind of working in data products and analytics, and I didn't really consciously decide to focus on that. Uh, until about four years ago, just because so much of my work was in this space. Uh, but it was primarily with tech companies and, uh, you know, companies are building either SaaS tools or hardware software tools like this that had some type of analytics component, such as on top of an IoT service. Uh, and most of them are all struggling with a, a common theme, which is finding what is the right signal in the noise and how do you present the signal properly and how do you map that to what you know, someone's job is or the work that they're doing, um, there, there's so much telemetry to work with now, which makes the problem of picking out the goodies more difficult. And so that's kind of what I, I help my clients with. And, and I like to work with, um, you know, pro both product people have kind of traditionally been my, my main clients, but I also work with technical people, engineering and, and data analytics people who don't always have some of the skill sets that are required to natural skill set, I should say, because I think design is something that can be taught. And and even if you don't become a designer, I kind of joke about you could become a design nerd with a D at the end of it, and you can learn some of these practices. And it's like, you don't need to be a professional bodybuilder to go to the gym and get something out of it. And if you can just get into the gym and start doing almost anything in the gym, you're probably going to get some type of result out of it. And it may not be the best result possible, and it may not be efficient the way you're what order you're doing the circuit training and then your cardio or whatever, but you're probably gonna get some value if you make a commitment to do some of that. So I try to encourage positive design behaviors with, with data and analytics teams and to try to put, to learn what it means to put humans at the center of their work so that the solutions they build don't fall on the floor or collect dust and sit in the corner, which is, as you guys probably know, is very much the case if you look at a lot of the the recent studies over the years from multiple sources that these big data and you know and it was big data and it was bi before that and then it was analytics and now it's model you know ai and predictive models there a lot of them are failing uh and and i don't work on the the part where it fails because you know oh we couldn't get all the right data we needed and some of these more technical reasons but it's more the stuff like the business doesn't know what problem it wants to solve and so like Give us a serving of AI with a side of a neural net. You know, it's like, what does that mean to a data person, and how do you unpack that that request? Because that that's a tactic built into a request, and if you put your human-centered design hat on, there you can use techniques to get at what someone actually needs in terms of decision support, and focus on the outcome you want, and not the model or thing that you're building. 
So outcomes over outputs is kind of the goal there. And anyhow, I'm just kind of rambling here, but that's that's kind of my journey, I guess, so far. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's awesome, and it sounds like a a super exciting field to be in. And I and I have to imagine that your your wait list for clients is probably hundreds of miles long, um, <laughs> because you know it it seems like for the the wider marketplace when you talk about data products. Um, it was mostly a primary offering, but now it seems like every app we download, every platform that we use has data as a, a secondary or supporting feature in almost everything that, that we use. And, and most of it is not done very well. Um, so I imagine your, your services are, are highly, highly in demand. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think the, I think, I think it's still, especially as we move into the AI space and, and machine learning. So really, these technologies have been around a while. They used to be called predictive analytics or prescriptive analytics, and they're more advanced techniques. Um, and so I think what happens is you, I, I, this is just my feeling, when the f new technology first comes out, it's a race to go use the technology at all costs. So you get whatever talent you need to say that you've done something with it. Then something hits the wall or you spend a ton of money, you don't get any value out of it. And then someone realizes like, oh wait, if we're still building human in the loop systems, we still need to involve humans in the process of making these things. And while with predictive analytics and prescriptive analytics and models that that may have less GUI, you know, there might be less interface that comes out of the end of them, they can still fall flat if people don't trust what went into them or they don't understand how the prediction is coming up or they don't understand why they should care about it. It doesn't matter that you used, you know, this new technology or not. And so I think we're, I, I'm again, I have no data to back this up, but it's, it's a general feeling that we're going to have a period of like lots of just AI for the sake of AI, hope that it sticks, hope some value comes out of it. And then there'll be this rebound and, and it's like, we're going to realize that if these tools are for humans, we're going to have to get back to what their goals are and what are the outcomes that we want to have and what do the business people need if you're building internal solutions. You can't just go, you know, you can't throw machine learning at everything and expect that you're going to have value created at the other end of it. Yeah, and it's it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, we, we work in slightly different spaces, but I've, I've seen that trend happen over and over again since I got into um, the more traditional, well, non-traditional digital analytics space in the early 2000s, uh, mm -hmm. we saw a similar cycle. Everyone had to have an enterprise analytics solution. We don't know why, but we have to have it. Yeah. And then once that was in place, then, well, everyone needs an A-B testing platform. We, we don't know why, but we have to tell our board that we have sure. it. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing a similar trend in digital analytics where a AI is now the thing. You know, we have to have our personalization programs AI powered. We don't even know what that means, but we have to have it. Yeah. <laughs> so... I think that's, I think that's natural, and and I think it's okay to experiment with some of these technologies. But I think, I think having a lab mindset versus a we're going to deliver actual. There's a business problem or a customer problem or an opportunity, and we're going to actually deliver an outcome, is a different is a different exercise than we need to start using these tools and we're not sure, but we know they're important. So we do want to actually spin up and deploy a machine learning model into production. That is an engineering exercise to me. It's a data science and engineering exercise. And there may be a valid reason for that. And that's totally not my space to judge that. I think it's when someone has an expectation that there's going to be value deliver, that's where it, it breaks down. And I don't think those conversations are always happening. I mean, this is why now you you guys might know about this whole analytics translator role that McKinsey has been kind of touting. And I hate I hate the name. I, I think data product manager is probably a better name for this, but it's realizing that companies that are trying to use data internally to to improve their services and offerings or internal processes or whatever, this person that sits at the intersection of ensuring that a business outcome was was delivered, some value was delivered, they can interface with the IT and software engineering and the analytics people. There seems to be a, a gap there. And I, I think some senior data people can take that on and, 
the the jury's out. I've heard two perspectives on this from you know International Institute for Analytics, and I tend to be on the same page about this. That they feel like, you know, if you keep thinking that it's the business's job to hand you a finely tuned problem to go out and solve, that's just ready for you to go off and write code and do modeling against, you're going to be out of a job in a couple of years because they don't know what's possible and they don't always know what to do, and so they're looking for the data science people and the, the skilled analytics and data strategy people to help them figure out what should we be doing? What should we be looking at? Your role is not just to execute, but it's also to help figure out where should we deploy resources? What strategically could we do here? And so I, I think design can help with some of this bridging and it's like a glue between all these things. I mean, in, in, in tech companies, you, you hear this you know, the power trio, as I call it, the product management, uh, your technical uh, leader, which could be someone in analytics or software engineering, and then your your product design. And they each kind of tug at each other. You know, one's, one's focused on overall business value, the one's focused on feasibility, and the designers are always championing what's right for the, the end user and, 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 and for the business. And so there's this nice tug there. Um, and I feel like there's only two of those in a lot of internal businesses. They're missing that uh they're they're missing one of those roles sometimes and so that's why we have potentially some of these failures that not yeah. some but quite a few of these failures um what do i do with this data thank you for this thing you gave me but or you built it without involving the sales team and you said we can we can predict which people you should call this week i mean i use this example all the time and it's like here are the 10 people that we think will close this week so focus your efforts on that and the sales guy like screw you, man. Like, I know this guy. I'm in Florida this week. I'm going to call. I, I feel like this guy is going to buy at some point. I have no idea how you came up with this list. I have never talked to these people before. And you're telling me I should be charging them this price. Like, you may be totally right. Like, the model may be right. Like, there may be a strong correlation that those people are going to buy. And the pricing predictions that you gave may be really accurate. But if you didn't involve the salesperson, in the process of designing this predictive algorithm that's supposed to be helping them, then it may fail simply at the point of user engagement. It fell on the floor. And so none of that cool work that you did on the data side mattered. And so the question is, whose job is it to make sure that these people actually, op you know, what they say operationalize, I kind of hate that word because really it's, it's simple. It's really about a, a user choosing to use your software solution because it helps them. So you can either intentionally design that or you can just do the prayer model, which is deploy and pray, <laughs> which is what I think, you know, some businesses do. And then they wonder why they don't like, what are we spending all this money on? And then there's the two, you know, now I'm here. It's like you have about two years as a senior data leader. You've got about two years to show value. And it's like, oh, we're still standing up our private cloud. And that took that's going to take three years or <laughs> and it's like now they're out the door. Next guy, come, you know, gal comes in. And it's like, no wonder we're not creating a lot of value in this in this space. So anyway, I'm going off on my one of my rants yeah. here. I think there's a lot of smart people in this. It, this, this stuff is hard to get right, but it takes it more is. than data science and analytics skills to build great decision support solutions and data products and to make it actionable and useful. It's hard and, and it, it takes is. intentional design. Not It's not a byproduct of the technology that you build, in my opinion. Yeah, and you, you brought up something that, that kind of made me remember something I've been thinking about for a long time and would love your your opinion on in, in that companies have had data science teams for, for a long time. Um, and often, the, at least the companies that I've worked in, they've kept them in the basement. And to your point, they've said, okay, we have a very defined thing that we want to figure out. You guys go crunch on it and then bring us back a binary answer. Um but we've seen a shift recently in the, the types of people that we work with in the companies. We tend to uh, focus in marketing organizations and in the C-suite. Um, but they, it seems like they're wanting more of what I've called the data science light or someone that's less the, the guy down in the basement and more someone that has a bit more business rigor and understanding that they can bring to the equation. And, and in parallel to that, we're also seeing companies like Domo and others that are 
positioning that in that we can bring data science to the masses, to the everyday technical employee, and give a blend of some of the hardcore stuff, but give it a little softness that comes with with business. I'm I'm interested in in your opinions as far as you know, is that a fair observation that, you know, we've had these groups for a long time, but there wasn't necessarily a good overlap with, with business insights or business understanding. And it's kind of now swung to the other way where we've, we've tried to take a lot of the rigor out of data science and make it more approachable to, to the everyday business person. Um, so I do know there's there, I, I just saw something that came through my inbox about and, and I've heard this talked about before, we're even bringing like predictive models into just something as simple as Excel, which, which so many business leaders are used to working in, but it's trying to connect some of these technologies to that. And at the end of the day, whether you're using Domo or a, you know, an, a, a SaaS product or it's a custom thing, what I hear, what I hear you saying is those, those people are saying we need we need actionable decision support and we're not getting it from the person in the basement. That's really what they're asking for. And so there's a disconnect there and that could be a presentation issue. It could be that the business, the, the, the data scientist doesn't, isn't asking the right questions to get at how this information is going to be used. It could be unrealistic expectations of the person requesting the services, but that's, that's partly why I've moved into, into training now. And I'm, I'm actually in the middle of running a, a new seminar on this is to try to help people that are that are familiar with the, the technology piece to get better at learning how to interface with the business stakeholders such that you don't spend six months building out a model for something that maybe they could have just, you could have said, here's my recommendation, go buy a $200 a month package at Domo, use this data here, and I think it'll get you a really quick answer. It'll take us six months to build something here, but that that's a, that's a different mentality than like, you told me to build a model, I went and built the model. Here's what it said. It said 82. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. It's like, that's not what someone actually wants, but you have to know how to dig into that. And, and that's a different skill set to, 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 to ask the right type of probing questions. And this is why I'm a big fan of like, Human-centered design requires that we do one-on-one -on -one research. And this can be done with end users, which may or may not be your business stakeholders. It could be the same person. But you have to ask the right questions to get at why they want this information. Where is it going to break down? Like, what's going to stop them from using it? You know, you guys probably know, like, the Jeff Bezos thing, where it's like, write the press release at the beginning of the project. And I, and I love this mentality as an exercise because it, it, you have to tout what the business outcome was, not just the technology, but like it's going in the times or whatever, right? It needs to be basic and clear. What what did they do What that was so innovative and interesting? Another one of those is like write the disaster press release, right? Like how did it totally fail? Like what would we ha how could we totally screw this up? Like get the model, get the data analytics part correct, but totally fail to the point someone wrote an article about it. What would that look like? And some of those things are not going to have anything to do with the quality of the technology. It's it's in the experience of the person that's trying to use it to go do something with it. To how much should I spend on this campaign? Should I buy it over here? Or should I buy it over there? Like that kind of stuff, right? That that's really what they want. And they may start saying like, I want to see CPM values per state, per demographic, per whatever. This is where it gets really scary. Is the, is the illusion of the requirements document where someone starts stating all this and, and most people can't can't articulate that stuff in a way that someone else is really going to be able to provide them what they what they need they will provide what they asked for but that's like that's like the going in the doctor and saying give me doctor my arm hurts please give me a cast and can you imagine if your doctor is like yes i'd be happy to give you a cast come this way here's your cast i hope you enjoy it and here's the bill like no, 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 <laughs> right? Your, your job is to be analogy. a healer. Like, you're a healer. <laughs> yeah. You're not a cast maker. So you have to first do the proper discussion and figure out, like, what's needed. And that's, that's I, I, hope the, the, I hope the smart people that are, you know, working on the technology side of this can start thinking, you know, have empathy for the people requesting their services and realize your shit can, like, break down at a level that has nothing to do with, with your technical skill set whatsoever. And you can say, that's not my job. Fine. Then I don't know. I mean, that sounds kind of 
like a lame job to like go build stuff that no one cares about. Like I would get sick of that if I was a technical person. Like it's so much more fun to work on stuff where they're like, this is so useful. When can I get more? Like, could you work on this other thing? Like, I mean, who wants to work on stuff? I don't know that, that, that's me, I guess, self-reflecting. I don't know about you guys, but like, <laughs> I want to work on stuff that makes a difference, you know? <laughs> I think as definitely as people get uh, longer in their careers, that becomes more and more important for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. As, as, as you've kind of been around a while, wanting to spend your time doing stuff that matters becomes much more important than I think when, for most of us, when we were younger in our careers. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So as a, as a designer, how important is it for you to think about the balance of creating a visualization layer that helps to simplify very, very complex things with ensuring that, well, is it important that we help ensure that there is some, some rigor behind it and we're not just pulling a number out of a model that may or may not make sense? Is From a design perspective, is it important to help the, the end user understand that there, there is some some validity to the data and it's just not an, uh, a pretty number that we're putting into an interface so it, yes well that, that wasn't a binary question so let me let me unpack that for a second i think there are definitely designers out there who will say like okay the requirement was like take this chart and make it look nice and figure out how to lay it out and so they do exactly that that is not product design, that's not human-centered design, that's graphic design, uh, that's a different skill set. Uh, it's important to get the visual part right, the, but what you just told me there is that as a user, I don't just need the prediction, but I, I also need some evidence about how you came up with that in this particular case. So we need to, the, the full design is figuring out the the needs and the problem that need to be solved and the surface layer the output of the work is the visualization or the GUI or the UX or whatever it may be those are outputs right but I, I would I would consider that integral to the design is understanding how much stuff you need there so I, I have a framework that I call the CED framework for this which is conclusions evidence data and it's kind of like this pyramid right and so as a general rule focus on the conclusion part think about stage two as evidence and you have to talk to customers to understand the right balance of evidence and overload because they they may in this case they may need to know what for example model transparency right like which of the features in the model corresponded highly to this prediction I don't need to know everything about it, but I, you know, if I'm going to decline the classic example like loan, right? I, do I give a loan or not to Jim to go out and like create a Red Sox Fenway Park in his backyard scale model? You know, should I give Wait, him that he's loan a, he's or a, not? He's a he's a Philly fan, so he probably doesn't even want the loan. Okay, a flaming one, a flaming Fenway Park. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> the point is, like, you can't just say like. Don't give Jim the model, and that's the answer. End of story, right? If this this is now you're getting to compliance issues, right? So that's a different kind of requirement. But you can see a place where it's like, well, how did you come up with this? Like, I got to go have a discussion with someone, and you can't just give me this number. And so that design process is very much about balancing, like, how much evidence do I provide? And sometimes the evidence is like, you know, like in some of these, you know, for example, these uh, analytical monitoring applications I've built. The evidence is sometimes things like when you're troubleshooting, tell me what stuff you already checked and maybe tell me what stuff you didn't check because I don't know exactly what your software is looking at. I know it's like your thing's like wired into my whole infrastructure and it's like I don't even I don't remember during the sales pitch like how many are you monitoring the CPU and the memory swap and the ballooning like I don't know. Right. So it's. What stuff did I check? What stuff did I not check? So that the, the end user can then decide about how much do I believe this? Do I need to go maybe go do some level two analysis, which maybe says like, I need to run this by my boss before I make a buying decision or whatever it may be. That's all the design part, right? Figuring out that balance between signal and noise or conclusion and evidence. And then at the lowest level there is kind of the data, which is a, a generic way of saying in some cases you need to provide access to a, 
what could be a lot of information. So if you imagine stuff, you know, this is where your huge tables with tons of columns of data, which typically are not very human parsable whatsoever, but there are times where you may need to go down to that level and see that information. Not always, definitely not always, but I do like to think of it in terms of those tiers. Uh, sometimes having a mo uh, this, you know, in design, we have this thing called, you know, the, the mobile first mentality. And sometimes I'll recommend that to clients. It's like, even if your solution's not going to be used on a phone regularly, what would you present in a phone capacity if you had to? Because you have to limit the choices, right? And it really starts to make you focus on what that signal is, uh, even if you're not going to, you know, be providing a mobile-oriented solution, which you probably should be doing, but it, yeah. it does depend. Not not everything is suitable for that. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I just pulled up uh, your framework on your site. We'll definitely link that up in the show notes because I think there's some really, really um, interesting things to think about from a framework perspective here. And the reason that I bring it up is, you know, I see it as a challenge for a lot of the companies that we work with, uh, the individuals at companies that we work with is that where do I find the right balance in that pendulum swing to be able to to present my, my insights? And if they're too far to one side, uh, the feedback from the, the executive is often, you know, get out of here with your nerd speak. We don't, you know, we need to understand what this means to the business. You know, what what does this actually mean? And then if you swing too far to the other side, the same group of executives may very easily come back and say, but well, wait a minute, we need some evidence of what you're saying here. We can't just have your, you know, your summary here. So finding that, that balance is something that um, I think a lot of the people that we work with struggle with. And I'm not sure that there's a right... Um, or a specific answer for for everyone, but at least having some kind of a structured framework for how to think through that, I think can be very beneficial. Yeah, no, I definitely uh, hope that's useful. And there's also, I have a free guide. It's 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 a self-assessment guide for, for uh, products using analytics. So it's the kind of mentality there is to go through it and it, it forces you to ask some questions from kind of the perspective of a designer looking at uh, an analytics product and it, it can you know it might be able to help in a similar capacity kind of figure out am i am i am i doing it right is my design good you know if you're not talking to uh, to an end customer which is much better than reading a guide and going through it yourself but if you're not doing that it's a great kind of high level pass uh, to understand that so and and the other thing i i think i would say to what you just said jason is is the and this is something that technical people have to get comfortable with and and it's something i talk a lot about my training design is messy and it's all about gray you know it's not black and white it's not like when you're building a data product or something like this there's actually not a pot of gold out there there's pots of gold all over the place so don't feel like is it right or not? Did I get to it? Because there's several different possibilities. There's not one possibility. So the goal is like find a good, find a good one. <laughs> it doesn't have to be the only one. Uh, but this stuff is messy, and it's all about living in the gray area. Like you said, how much conclusion versus evidence? There is no binary answer for that. It depends on who is seeing this. Is it an executive? Is it a uh, an expert? Is it like a mar someone that speaks your language that wants the evidence? Is it another data person? They probably want to, they want to understand your protocol and like all the stuff that you went through. An executive probably doesn't. Give me the highlights. What does it mean? Maybe someone below that will say, okay, that's great. We do want to get some evidence to back this up. Like, what did you do? Did you check this? Did you check that? You know, and that's a different conversation, but there's no one right answer. So you have to get comfortable with this gray area, um, you know, and so that I think that's why there's so much stuff now in the whole storytelling space, you know, for, for people working in analytics that are prim primarily delivering an, an ad hoc presentation or a static document that's telling us that's telling information. Um, I kind of don't like the storytelling as as a thing because it makes it sound like I'm supposed to go tell a story. And you could still tell the wrong story, but it's a story like I, I, it misses a little bit of something for me. I, I understand where it's coming from in, in terms of helping communicate the findings. And that's not my area of expertise. I focus more on delivering the story within a, pro a software product that has to it has to tell the story on its own innately. Right. It doesn't have the, the benefit of nice slides with a narrator and someone to ask questions, you know, like <laughs> to, to actually, you know, bounce questions off of. It's a different kind of medium. Um, but I think, you know, not, not to toss all of storytelling 
uh, out, but really it's about figuring out what the, the recipient needs and being really tied into that and, and, and rooted in empath empathy so that whatever your output is, it resonates with that person. Uh, it doesn't, whether it's PDF or mobile app or whatever the delivery mechanism is, right? It doesn't really matter a deck. Uh, if you haven't talked to those people, it's, it's maybe a swing and a miss. You know, I like to get ahead of that. You know, you can proto, you can even go out with fake data, you know, early on. And I think even like with predictive models, for example, there are techniques uh, for testing, like such as the wizard of Oz uh, test, which if you imagine something like uh, you're working on a, on a conversational interface, AKA a chat bot, you can learn a lot as to what you need in your chat bot by simply having a real human on the other side of the chat bot responding to the inputs of the person. And so what you're doing there is trying to understand what kinds of stuff are they inputting into the system. You don't need to build any NLP system whatsoever to start to understand where your chatbot may fail. Like, wow, if we don't know, if we don't know how to model a, you know, an apple and this person is talking about apples all day long, this thing is going to fail because we're getting a lot of inquiries about apples, right? You don't need to build a model to figure that out. You need to understand what someone's likely to type into this tool and want to get information out of there. So my point here is that if it's possible to prototype what your solution might look like early and get feedback on it, it may save you a lot of work later on. So it, it's kind of weird and you don't always get that chance, right? If you get the one shot to present your findings to the, the executive team, you may not get that chance to, to go do a practice round with a pseudo deck. And it's like, we have, you know, we're really here to practice the run through of the presentation with fake data, but we want to know what types of questions you're going to ask us so that we can come back and actually deliver it with the real data when we get to it. Um, it that, that's a design thinking, you know, applied to the static, you know, the static delivery format, I guess, instead of pro of software. Yeah. Side, side note, um, I was the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz back when I uh, thought I wanted to be a thespian. Sweet. So, um, Sweet. How was that? <laughs> it was fun. The The theater card you know, got a little too fact, weird I for think... me, though. <laughs> They're still weird. I, I work with theater people uh, all the time. They're great but... <laughs> people, but I, I could not hang on that level. <laughs> By the way, did you hear, like, there was, like, arsenic or asbestos or something in the paint in the original version of that there's like some funny story oh my, about really? how i think the paint or one of those outfits like had it was basically poisonous oh my gosh <laughs> i recently read something about that i thought it was kind of fun i mean probably not funny for the family of the person not a, that yeah definitely impacted, if there were long-term impacts there yeah. <laughs> yeah long enough maybe yeah. we can laugh at it now i don't know yeah so <laughs> um i i did have a question so a lot of our listeners, um, they're, they're tasked with doing consumer behavior analytics. So they're being asked questions like, um, you know, why are so many people following out in our checkout flow? You know, why are so many of our customers buying low ticket items, but there seems to be anxiety around buying high ticket items? What, what can someone in that space learn from, from someone that is, has taken a more product-centric uh, approach to to designing analytics and is there any overlap there that that you know they can learn from a, a little bit different of a discipline um yeah that, that's those types of um kind of ad hoc queries about those you know why is this why is x happening and the answer is why that that, uh, that that's a little outside of my space but if i was to come in with that with with my particular hat on and think about that and uh, more of an you know ad hoc analytics type of project, um, I would be again. I'd be wondering, what are you going to do with the information? What are you going to do with the answer? And I want to kind of work it backwards from that, so I know approximately how much evidence and decision support do I need to provide to you so that you believe that. Like, do you need to see the checkout flow in order to believe that everyone is failing on the checkout page? Or, or is it enough to just tell you, like, it's failing here, there's a lot of bouncing between product images and then they exit or whatever. Great, but what are you gonna do with that information? I wanna unpack that so that I can provide the right amount of evidence to support the next thing that they're going to do. 
and it may not be like I'm not trying to like solve the next thing, but I want to anticipate it so that the information I give them is as close to actionable as possible at the time I deliver it to them. And it's not ask for more information or they're kind of like not trusting it, especially if it's like a surprise finding, right? Like it's not either what they wanted to hear or they're having a really hard time believing the information that's there. I'd want to have the right kinds of questioning with them about how they're going to use the data or the information um, as early as possible so I can support you know, the findings that way. And I understand that may not be possible. You're like, I, we have no idea why people are bouncing off the site because we haven't done any work whatsoever. But you could ask something like, well, what's the, how do you take action on a project like this? Like, do you send this to someone else to do some, te some further testing on it? Do you have to sell this to a boss? And oh yeah, yeah, I have to get my sign off from my, you know, the CMO has to sign off on it. Well, what would it take for the CMO to believe that this is real? Like, are they a data person? Are they more of a story person? Would it be better to show an example? Like, we found some data that says people bounce around the images, go to the checkout page, and then leave, or whatever it may be. Would showing them a video of someone doing that that's actually frustrating? Like, if we went out and tested a couple people to validate that our quantitative data was right, maybe that kind of emotional story would help them believe and sell it, or maybe they know that and they need to sell it to someone, right? So now it's like, we already know what's wrong. We know it's bad. We know the checkout is is busted. We know the images suck, but our CEO is not gonna spend money to fix it until he sees it. Like that's a whole different thing, right? You might cut yeah. down your analysis time and focus on the story and the emotional, the emotional pain that, and watching someone struggle, right? W watching a, a customer struggle in a usability study, validating the, I have a hundred thousand points that's, that reflect exactly what this one person on the video camera is doing times a hundred thousand. That is what's going on right now. That is a powerful, that's a powerful way to inspire change uh, in any company that's selling services to human beings is watching them suffer and, or hate your product or talk about what's wrong with it. It's such a powerful thing, and I think everybody should do, be doing that if you're building products and services, is get out there and into the field, do ride-along studies, shadow your customers if you can, bring them in to do testing. It, it sheds a lot of light on stuff that you're never gonna get in analytics, you know, because analytics yeah. aren't gonna tell you why, right? They're not gonna say why they did this thing. They show you the click path and all this kind of stuff. You have no color for the journey. Right, like I, I reluctantly went through and bought your thing. You won't see the reluctance. You probably, I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe now they can model reluctance. I would want to know though if people are reluctantly buying my product, like because that says like at some point maybe it's going to end. Like I, I don't know. <laughs> I would want to know that if I was selling, selling yeah. widgets. Well, that's great counsel. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, what 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 types of things are you keeping um, an eye on as far as the future of product analytics? Um, when you say product analytics, are you, you're talking about analytics for analytics in product, in product analytics? Um, I, I wouldn't say I have any particular eye specifically on product analytics, but I, I think one thing companies are trying to do right now is, is figure out what, what value added services can you add to a product that may use data, right? And so it's not necessarily monetizing data that comes from the product, but it could be providing some type of data solution that goes with the product, right? So it's like, you know, Nike has the sensor in its shoes, and now you have analytics on your running, and it's like they've connected the physical product to some type of analytics and decision support that can help you overall with sports and in your training and that type of thing. So I, I think I think people are wondering about this and and I don't know if you guys follow like the you know Gartner puts out its its chief data officer model every year and the version 4 model just came out and it's all about product right and getting off of kind of this project mentality and and the IT side of it but really thinking about product and I think that's really interesting right it's 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 thinking about not just like analytics in terms of how do we you know find operational excellence that we can fit, you know, problems in our supply chain and all these kinds of stuff, that's fine. But some of the big wins come when you can bring new services. Uh, and, and so I think people are trying to figure out how do we, how do we do that? And that's a, 
that's a tough thing, right? And I, I worry a little bit about like some places approach is just gonna be like, work it backwards from the data. Like let's make up use cases from the data that we have, which I think is kind of a backwards way, but I'm sure that's that's informing some of it, right? Cause people are like, here's all the sand. What can we build with the sand? Can we make a castle? Like, I, <laughs> I don't know, like, it <laughs> So I don't. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's good. So, if you if you could only recommend one, well, what if if someone wanted to pick up a book about data design strategy, what would you recommend? Oh gosh, are you really gonna? I'm put going me on to the spot to pick one. Yes. <laughs> uh, I can't, because then what happens is you rattle off a whole bunch. So like, and then someone's gonna get mad, and it's like, wait, you should have said this. No, I, I mean, I, I honestly, I don't. I, I, there's no one book that I, I think about with this stuff, because there's like, when people say design, some people are thinking about data visualization, and so there's, and then some people are thinking about storytelling with data, which is the name of uh, Cole's book and her whole company and. Tufties, of course, the classic for data visualization stuff, which is more than probably a lot of people working in day-to-day -day analytics need on a regular basis. So I, I'm more, right now, like for example, I'm reading uh, Doug Laney's book uh, called Infonomics. Uh, I've been reading um, Future Ethics, which is Kenneth Bull's uh, book on uh, kind of ethics from a designer's perspective in the AI space, because I think that's, that's looking kind of at human-centered design in a broad context. Uh, and then actually I just went to, at Harvard uh, Business School just ye yesterday or two days ago. There was a, uh, a book release there uh, competing on the edge, uh, competing in the ed in the age of AI, uh, which I'm really looking forward to, to getting into that uh, book. I don't, are you guys familiar with that text that just came out? I am not. Okay, yeah. So it's uh, Kareem Lakani and, and Marco Iancidi wrote, wrote that. And, uh, oh, wait. Kareem runs what? That. Did I just read Harvard one of Business his books? Analytics program. <clears throat> that name sounds so familiar. Yeah. <clears throat> Is he an economist? Uh, he's so he's the I believe he's the dean. Uh, he's a professor and he's a dean uh, uh, in the Harvard Business School. Uh, okay. And he, I think he chairs the the um, HBAP so program, Harvard Business Analytics program, or whatever it's called. I, I forget the name of it. So, Got it. Okay, I'll have to check that but, out. Um, yeah. So, so that's I'm 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 interested in that space, and you know, obviously, everyone's interested in, in in these technologies, and and yeah, I'm just hoping people, I'm hoping we can keep people at the center of these these technologies and services. There's so much value they can bring, but there's also things that they can do wrong, and you know, maybe we'll learn differently than we have, you know, if you look at large scale things like what happened with Facebook and Twitter and social media with some of the negative sides of what these large scale systems create over the long term, unintended effects, right? And and so I kind of wonder what is the 10 year out version of that look like with AI? And we know all the famous ethical examples of what can be yeah. done wrong with, with AI, but I, I, part of the reason I'm on this mission to bring human-centered design into this space is to, because I think it matters, and I, I just, I don't want to live in that kind of place. And if, 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 I can, if I can help really talented technical people and product people to really build empathy and, and, and humanize the work that they're doing and just, you know, get, just getting them in a room and talking to a customer and understanding their fears around, even if they're totally irrational fears, but understanding how your work fits into their life and, and, and you're just like, this is so basic. I mean, it's a basic machine learning model. All it does is this or whatever. And they're like picturing this Terminator. You're going to end my job. You're going to like, my job's going away. And what else are you guys crafting down there in the basement mm -hmm. with the PhDs? Like yep. just getting that, building that empathy and helping them understand like what you're doing and the value you're providing and, and how all that stuff I think is really important. Um, I don't know. I, I just yeah. No, I I love that. <laughs> absolutely, I absolutely agree. Uh, last question: uh, What's your all-time favorite Broadway musical? <laughs> um, you know, you know what's really funny. So I, I play a lot of shows, and I rarely ever see shows. And I've played so many shows that I've never seen. It. I I have the experience of a blind person going to a show. I really do because I hear the shows. You know, on average, I'll play 
uh, when a run happens, it's about eight shows a week. So wow. I'm doing another Mamma Mia coming up in a couple months, and that'll be 16 shows over two weeks. Never have seen anything except actors <laughs> backstage, so I really have no idea what's going on because they don't give us monitors in the pit because we're down in the right. pit most of the time. So, right. so because I'm playing them a lot, I tend to not go to the shows too much, but um, I do. Uh, I, I loved Book of Mormon. I thought that was highly entertaining. And uh, what was the one with the puppets? It was a little bit... It was a little bit obscene. Uh, there, there's uh, Avenue Q. Avenue Q. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw it like ten years ago, twelve years ago. Yeah. When it was here in Philadelphia. Yeah. So those those were entertaining, mm -hmm. but but because I'm playing a lot of it, I, I tend not to go out to the shows too much, just because I it, it gets it's just I don't Fair know. Enough. I'm more of a concert uh, type person, but I enjoy playing the shows and 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 do that more. So what's what's your favorite show you've played? Uh, my favorite show that I've played, um, you know, to be honest, one of the most fun shows I did was the, the national tour of Motown, uh, was going through a couple years, about three or four years ago. And it was just great. Cause it, it really went through the whole era. It was like, it was like playing a get like a bar gig, but like in the context of a whole Broadway musical, the arrangements were super tight. They had a huge band. So there was very little like electronics or backing tracks or any of that. Yeah. Um, the, the cast was awesome. Great singers. The little Michael Jackson was, they had two, 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 uh, children played the role of little Michael Jackson and just finding even someone that can get close to, to Michael Jackson, you know, and hearing that every night was really great. So that's such a laid back fun, just a groove type gig. So that that's probably one of the most fun ones I've done. Awesome. Um, so, yeah. Very cool. Well, Brian, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Uh, I think lots of really good nuggets of, of guidance and counsel that uh, our listeners can walk away with. And we'll definitely link up some of the, the resources that, that you mentioned, but really appreciate you stopping by and, and having a chat with us. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. Well, good. Thank you so much. And yeah, I hope it was, uh, hope it's useful and uh, feel free to check out Designing for Analytics, and I'm easy to reach on there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll link everything up. And, um, yeah, it, it was a great conversation. Um, when you and I had first chatted, I kind of envisioned something a little bit different. And, and of course, we kind of get started and go off in a different direction. But uh, 33 the, tangents. Exactly. That, that's exactly why, why we <laughs> named it tangents, because we just go off in all, all different ways. And, you know, I think kind of on the fly it, it turned out better than, than i um could have expected so yeah definitely appreciate the time definitely my it's been my pleasure thanks for having me on here to share my my thoughts absolutely cool well thanks a lot guys um we'll go ahead and wrap up here and uh we'll talk to everybody later sounds good yeah let me know when it drops and i'll 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 uh... Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.